Welcome to the Drop Time Report. Turn up the volume and listen to amazing stories about big bucks and the hunters who harvested them. Here is your host, outdoor writer, Tracy Breen. On this week's show, we're going to have on a very special guest, Gordon Winnington, the former editor-in-chief of North American Whitetail. Uh, I've known Gordon for quite some time. I used to write quite a bit for North American Whitetail, and he announced earlier uh, this month that he's actually uh, retiring. He will still probably write for the publication. He may even still be involved with the TV show a little bit, but he's kind of stepping back and going to enjoy retirement a little bit. Um, Gordon has been the face of North American Whitetail for decades and really got started with the publication uh, when it was in its infancy. And today we're going to talk about all the changes in the Whitetail world since he got involved in the early 80s. We're going to talk about uh, the Milo Hansen world record buck and when he was able to lay his hands on that deer shortly after um, it was killed. So it should be an awesome episode about all things whitetail with Gordon Winnington. He is a great guy, very humble for all of the things he has accomplished. Um, so I think everyone will enjoy it. Before we get him on the show, I'd like to thank all my sponsors. Uh, title sponsor, Redneck Blinds, uh, the makers of some awesome fiberglass blinds. They also have soft-sided blinds. Uh, Fourth Arrow Camera Arms, if you're into filming your hunt, check out Fourth Arrow Camera Arms. They also have the Final Rest Shooting System. Uh, you want to check that out. It works great in deer blinds, as well as var- varmint hunting this time of year in the winter months. Uh, Winsent, makers of vapor deer scent technology. Uh, it actually heats up urine and vaporizes it. <coughs> and it's been tested uh, by bloodhounds and uh, who can scent that um, hundreds of yards away. Also, Morel Targets, uh, Huntworth Clothing. If you're on a budget, check out HuntworthGear.com. Get some amazing clothing without breaking the bank. Pine Ridge Archery, makers of the Nitro Vein Lucky Buck Mineral. Now is the time to put Lucky Buck out. Uh, Deer will be shedding their antlers, and they'll need the nutrition heading into spring. Grim Reaper Broadheads, uh, my favorite broadhead. Schaefer Performance Archery. They make an awesome rest called the XV Aero Rest, been tested beyond 400 feet per second, and it still gets out of the way of the arrow. Illinois Connection Outfitters in Pike County, Illinois. If you're looking for an amazing outfitter, check out Illinois Connection. They, they uh, shot over a dozen booners this year. The Outdoorsmans, uh, they make great tripods and tripod accessories for optics and glassing. They are also one of the largest Swarovski dealers in America today. Also, Wilderness Athlete. Uh, We're in the new year. If you need to shed a few pounds, go to wildernessathlete.com. They have some amazing nutritional products. My favorite, Hydrate and Recover. Enter Drop 10 at checkout and get a discount. Now let's go ahead and get Gordon on the show. Welcome to the Drop Time Report, Gordon. How are you today? I'm doing great, Tracy. How's it going? Oh, it's, it's winter up here in Michigan, but we're hanging in there. You know, you guys down there in the South uh, always have it warm, you know. <laughs> well, sometimes too warm, but uh, this time of year it's pretty nice to have, you know, maybe 20s or 30s in the morning instead of 20 or 30 below. So, Yeah, for sure. Well, um, you know, the reason I'm having you on today is you've officially retired from North American Whitetail, so congratulations on that. I'm sure it's bittersweet. 
Yeah, it really is. I was there, you know, 36 plus years. And so while I, I don't consider myself fully retired at this point in the sense that I, I suspect I'll end up doing some projects and things going forward with uh, North American Whitetail. But in terms of the day-to-day heavy lifting, I have, in fact, officially retired. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about your early career for a minute. How did you get your start in the outdoor industry? Well, you know, it's, it's, everybody's got a story about how their, how their life, you know, started, why it went in a certain direction. In my case, I, I grew up on a cattle ranch in central Texas in the hill country back in, you know, I was born in 1956. And so by the time I got to be old enough to hunt, which in Texas is basically, if you can pull the trigger, you're old enough. I mean, that's kind of how <laughs> I always looked at it. No, no hunter ed, no minimum age for hunting or anything like that. So I started going with my dad's dad, who also lived on the ranch. Uh, he and my grandmother did. I started going with him. He was a big hunter, and, and I was five years old. Now, I didn't shoot a deer until I was seven, but, uh, but I started hunting at five, and my parents owned a meat processing plant, and then every fall, they would take in deer to process as well or for storage, for cold storage. So, so I was around it literally from the time I was basically in diapers. I was around deer and hunting, and we had deer on the ranch. And at that time, you know, the Texas Hill Country in the early 60s was one of the very few places that had high numbers of deer. Maybe southwestern Alabama. There were a few other places, but so much of the Midwest and the Northeast and even the Southeast didn't have great numbers of deer. But we were covered up in deer from the time I could I can remember. And so for me, being around white-tailed deer was always just a natural thing, like, you know, almost like family. And and so I always knew that I was interested in it, that I was fascinated by hunting and fishing. And that was my big hobby. And we lived out in the country and there wasn't much else to do. But but I gravitated in that direction. And I was also had no ability in math. I don't have a, a scientific, scientific engineering type mind like some people naturally do. But I did have a Sort of, I won't say it's a a gift, but more of a talent, if you will, for communication in in a written form. And so I was always good at English and language arts and things like that. And it just kind of occurred to me, I guess, maybe even when I was in, in grade school, that, hey, I'd like to be an outdoor writer. Well, at the time, you know, kids today might say, well, I want to be... Michael Waddell, or I want to be, you know, yeah. this or that or the other in terms of, of the platform that you use to communicate with the public in the in the hunting genre. Well, back then, the heroes were, you know, golly, I mean, it, it was going to be the, the classic outdoor writers, if you will, of the big magazines. And, mm-hmm. and whether, whether that was a Jack O'Connor, whether that was a you know, Homer Circle as a bass fisherman or, or somebody like that, Ted Trueblood. There were there were people like that that I naturally gravitated toward as my, you know, mentors from afar, if you will. And uh, yeah. I didn't know any of these people, but but I did realize that, hey, I, what they did was cool and it seemed like the perfect life. And so for me, I just wanted to be an outdoor writer. And I did have, you know, my abilities allowed me to do that without a lot of, you know, without a lot of heavy lifting, really. I mean, it was easy for me to write and to come up with ideas and things. So I just found myself drifting in that direction. And when I was in high school, we had no journalism classes or anything like that. I only had 22 other kids in my senior class of high school. So so we did live in the the sticks, and we're all rednecks, right? So 
Well, and that's why I think it's so easy to to relate to to the hunter today is that we didn't come at it from a big city media perspective. We came at it from a down-home hunter-fisherman perspective, which is what we Mm -hmm. are, you know. And yeah. so that that really that really makes it, it easy, I think, to understand the marketplace. But but I had no journalism training yet. I still won against kids from the biggest schools in Texas. I still won the state championship of feature writing when I was a senior in high school, and it was with very little instruction. It was just kind of came naturally to me. So so I went on and got my journalism degree at University of Texas and specialized in magazine journalism. Then went off to work for newspapers for a couple of years doing general sports. And then I got off into being associate editor for Texas Sportsman Magazine in Dallas in 1982. And then within a year, they had sold out to the group in Atlanta that founded Game and Fish Publications. Okay. Game and Fish, Public, Game and Fish Publications within a year had come out with something called North American Whitetail. And so I, when I moved over here to Georgia in 1984, it was to work on some of their state magazine titles, but I was already doing some writing for North American Whitetail as, as kind of a freelancer. And then within a few months, they said, hey, why don't you edit North American Whitetail? And so at age 28, they, here I am, you know, and then I got started on, started on the journey that now has gone another 36 and a half years and I'm finally stepping off, you know, so it's hard to say, it's hard to extricate myself and my career from NAW just because so much, so much of it has been here, you know, on the ground with the magazine and just, you know, and the TV show. But um, to say how I got into it, it just kind of naturally happened. And I think sometimes you're just blessed to be the right place at the right time. And sure. the whitetail industry, of course, was building so rapidly at that point, especially the trophy whitetail industry and the herd itself that I just happened, you know, I've, I've said it many times, I just happened to be the right guy at the right time, the right place, and I was blessed to have an opportunity, and I just stuck with it. That's really how this all happened. Did you have any idea in, you know, the mid-'80s that North America Whitetail would kind of become as iconic as it did? Well, you know, it was iconic in a sense because there wasn't anything else like it even okay. in the early days and 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 so i i got a sense right then that yes it's it is a big deal uh and i took it very seriously the responsibility of trying to edit that magazine and but i had so much help from people like not only david morris one of the founders but dick idol Dr. James Kroll, so many other people. Gene Wenzel was writing for us. And, and you know, we just had a lot of of great whitetail minds and, and figures, if you will, who mm-hmm. were contributing at that time. And really, there weren't a lot of other outlets for that. I mean, you had the, quote, big three national magazines, but they did not specialize in deer. Um, and, and actually, deer and deer hunting had already started, too. But it had a little bit of a different angle because it was more... I won't say more of a northern magazine, but it was but it was more of a magazine about the non-trophy aspects of what we do. And North American sure. Whitetail, mainly because Steve Vaughn, our first publisher and founder, and David Morris were both heavy duty big big into into big whitetails personally, and they they just felt like it was a market for it, but they didn't know that at the time. They really they they told me later said, look, we put out the first issue of it. We didn't know if there'd be a second issue. 
Yeah. We really didn't because we didn't know how many other people like us were out there. I mean, how could you know at that time? There's no sure. There's no online. There's no online anything. There's no computerized databases of who's into what. I mean, you just kind of had to go on a leap of faith that there were other people that were really into big whitetails, even though there was no way to prove it. Well, sure enough, there were a lot of people that were into it and still are, and. So I think in that sense, it, it was the first of the broad-based, geographic, geographically broad-based magazines that really said, look, this is what we're into. This is what we're interested in. Many different reasons, many different kinds of readers, but what unites all of us is an interest in mature, big-antlered whitetails. And sure enough, it just took off. So, so really early on, even with deer like the hole in the horn buck and things like that, those stories came out in North American Whitetail first. And I think that tended to make it kind of the go-to place for information on these really big top-end deer, as well as the other aspects of trophy hunting. So I think early on, it really, it stuck partly because, you know, there wasn't anything else out there like it, but also I think it, it quickly the right people became involved in presenting information and uh, and certain deer in those pages, and that tended to reinforce what it was trying to become. Was there always a big buck on the cover, you know, the happy hunter, the grip and grin? Was that always the platform? You know, honestly, we we were one of the first magazines to start using the, quote, you know, dead deer cover. Uh, if you think about it, so so little of that was done previously. I mean, if you know, you might have had an illustration of a buck jumping over a, a snowy log on the cover of Outdoor Life, you know, with a with a hunter behind him, the startled hunter. You know, what I mean, that's the classic kind of a scene, if you will, that was captured of of deer hunting when it came to cover cover images. Okay, well, the guys at Game and Fish had already had experience with their state magazines of running pictures of regular guys holding up nice deer and those magazines sold well. And so, but they didn't want to run one every month. They may not even have had enough to run every month in the fall. So Mm -hmm. they alternated them quite a bit with live deer photos, like more of a standard type of deer cover, but North American whitetail. I remember the, I think it was the August, 1987 issue. I remember uh, Ron Osborne in Ohio had shot the buck that everybody calls the junior hole in the horn buck like a 240-plus-inch non-typical with a bow, and our photo editor happened to be in Ohio at the time that Ron shot the deer, so he went and got with Ron and shot some photos of him with his deer, one of which was ended up on the cover. I think that's one of the very first ones that, of a specific big you know, world-class buck that was shot in the fields for a magazine cover. And now, of course, it's it's a more common thing with some publications, but even back then, um, several years after North American Whitetail started, it still was not something that we were chasing. It just, it, you know, it was kind of an organic process. Hey, we happened to get a good photo in, we'd run it on the cover, but the next month might be a live deer. And so okay. or it might be, a mount, might be a mounted deer in a studio, which we ran quite a few of those, including the hole in the horn, the Jordan buck and deer like that. Mm-hmm. Now, as you look back, you've had a long career, lots of monster bucks. You know, is there a couple bucks that really <clears throat> stick out in your mind that, you know, you go to bed at night and go, I'm, I'm glad I was able to be a part of that one, you know, that story <laughs> or whatever? 
Yeah, you know, there's there's been thousands of, of I don't know how many. I've never stopped to count them in 36 years, but there's been a whole lot of, of big deer that we've covered, obviously. And some of them, you know, the biggest deer doesn't always go, you know, it doesn't always go with the best story. Sure. I mean, sometimes you know, in a happenstance kind of a hunt, it's a great deer, but it's a hunt, if you will. No history with the deer, and of course, if you go back even 20 years or from from today or earlier. There's almost no trail cam photos. There's almost very few people were shed hunting. There wasn't a lot of backstory to many of those giant deer. They just got shot, you know, and then they turned in later, it turned into legends, but it wasn't their story that made them a legend. It was just their ranking or their measurements or whatever. And so, so some of those deer, as iconic as the deer themselves are, don't stand out to me as much. You know, I, I appreciate them like everybody else does, and 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 and, and all and, and all of them. But um, you know, when you get the great deer and the great story, those are the ones that stick out. And in that sense, I mean, as far as chasing a story, I've told people that one of the most fascinating things to chase, of course, was the Milo Hansen book. Because okay. in nineteen ninety in nineteen ninety three, when when he shot his deer in Saskatchewan and became the BMC World Record, prior to that for several years, everybody had been expecting that sooner or later the Jordan Buck is gonna 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 be trumped. At, at some point, somebody's got to shoot something bigger than two hundred six and one eight. It's been the world record effectively since nineteen fourteen. Well, surely somebody you know is going to kill something bigger. But you get all these rumors and they never panned out. For whatever reason, yeah. it never panned out. Well, then the Hanson buck, though, when I got the call, I literally was like, I'd come back from Montana like two days prior to that, sick the dog with the flu. I'd been in bed for two days. I finally crawled back into the office early December one morning, and I get this call. I get a message from the front desk. Hey, this guy says he's, you know, he, his neighbor shot a world record, typical, in Saskatchewan. I'm like, well, if it's Saskatchewan, there's always a chance, right? So I thought, well, I'll, I'll call him. So I'm about half, you know, half dead on drugs and everything else from trying to get over the flu. But then I talked to this guy named Jim Weeb. He said, yeah, he said, I, he lives down, this guy named Milo Hanson lives down the road from me. He said, I've seen the deer. He said, it will score. It'll, it'll be a new world record typical. And, and something about it just, I could tell the guy was legit. I wasn't looking mm-hmm. at the, you know, there was no, there weren't any cell phones at the time. And so I'm just like talking to him on the office line. And he, I said, well, if we can come up there, will he show us the deer? Will he talk to us? And he said, yeah, let me find out. And then so he, I talked to him a little bit later. He said, yeah, I'd be fine. So my publisher and I, Steve Vaughn, literally, that was at 1030 in the morning. At 1230, we were getting to the airport in Atlanta, 20 miles away. We hadn't even been home to get packed. We, hadn't, we didn't have anything. Yeah, I'm wearing a pair of cowboy boots and a light jacket. And okay. Steve's got on some jacket, and we're heading to Saskatchewan, okay, early December. And all we know is we hope it's real when we get there. And as it turned out, sure enough, it was. You know, the deer was legit. I knew, I was in Milo's house 11 hours that day talking to him. Oh, wow. Olive and looking at the deer, I never once put a tape measure to the deer. Never once. I didn't. So I didn't, you just knew. I, I knew it was a world record. You know, I didn't even, you know, and Steve was the same way. We didn't, you know, I wasn't, to me it was almost an insult to start scoring the deer when you knew it was a world record. I didn't really care exactly what it scored. I knew it was bigger than 206. And I, it was, it was so much bigger 
than 206. You know, I mean, it goes like 221 typical or whatever it was. And so, and it was clean. You know, he, he had the electric tape wrapped around the beam on the right side where he just about shot it off with one of his Hail Mary shots at this deer running through the bush. And okay. he had electric ta- he had electric tape still wrapped on it there, so it didn't break off at the time. Had it broken off, B and C had no had no allowance for putting an antler back into place to measure it like they do now. Uh, so it would have it would have lost the world record had he either shot it off or broken it off later. Well, I didn't want to touch it naturally, but at the same time, sure. I didn't have to touch I didn't have to touch it to know it was bigger than two hundred six. And you know, it was. Uh, I remember walking up to Milo's front door that morning and he a couple of his buddies were there or whatever they knew we were coming over we walked up there with with jim weeb who had, was going to do the introduction i remember reaching out to milo uh you know to his to shake his hand at his front door and i said is this the lucky trigger finger and i you know his right hand he said yeah that's it you know and so i said well let's he said i guess you want to see the deer i said yes sir and as soon as you walk in the door you know it turned to the right right inside of his farmhouse door and there was another room there and the thing's laying there frozen on the on the floor, the head. You know, it's not wow. even an old deer anymore. It's, okay. it, it hasn't been caped out yet. So when I put a cover, when we ran that deer on the cover of NAW, this two months later on the on the February 1994 issue, and nobody even knew about the deer really to speak of. There was no social media. There was no internet. There was no nothing. Yeah. And, and so it just shocked the world, you know. And But it was literally a photograph of Milo taken that night with that deer head, frozen deer head, lying on the edge of his truck bed with him sitting there wearing one of our caps. And that was how that photo and that story came to be. We didn't leave there till 11 o'clock at night. We got there at 10 o'clock in the morning. And But when we left there, we had an agreement to break his story. And so that it's hard to forget it an experience like that naturally it turned out we wouldn't have gone there if we didn't think it was legit naturally it was too much trouble and money to go do that but at the same time we had no guarantee it would turn out either we could have gotten there and somebody had grossly mismeasured this thing we hadn't even seen a picture we just okay. took it on faith that it was real and so you can imagine that that was quite a relief for that to not only pan out but for us to be able to nail down getting the the first story on the deer. And so that one will always be special, even though it wasn't this great involved, you know, one-on-one hunt, like a, like a mossy horns story or something like that, you know, from back in the old days of bow hunting, it was more, it was more opportunistic kill, but everything that was cool about it to me was not only because of how big the deer was and still is, but, but it was just the chase. It will. It was like, um, it's almost a hunt in and of itself to run down some of these deer. So that deer will naturally will always be right up at the top of the list. I mean, there's so many other deer, you know, that you, that you chase that are, you know, really exceptional. And, and everybody talks about the hole in the horn buck. And again, that's a case where, you know, everything kind of happened after the fact. I mean, the deer gets killed by a train or whatever, 1940, but it's 1982 before Dick Idle ever figures out it's a potential world record. And then 1983, um, right before I actually got to the magazine is when they broke the story on that deer. And that, again, sent shockwaves through the world, you know, a deer of that size. Nobody would seen mm-hmm. one that was that impressive, you know. But uh, the old Brady buck from Texas, killed in the 1890s or found dead in the 1890s, nobody knows which. That, that to me, is a compelling story because it's, it was a former world record until 
until the Missouri Monarch came along in 1980, <clears throat> 1981. But that that deer was a former world record, and yet there was so much confusion about you know the you know the origin of it. Uh, there was a, there was a mystery set of sheds that at one time was was ruled to be a second deer that turned out to be not only the sheds, but they had reversed which one of the two sets of antlers was the actual rack in the record book. And so okay. I spent years chasing down details, trying to, trying to get to the bottom of that story. And I wrote about it in my book, World Record Whitetails, and I wrote a long chapter about it, but I ended the chapter by saying I still don't know very much about this deer, and I just wrote seven or 8,000 words about it. And yet I've chased every down every rabbit hole I can think of, and I just have never gotten to the bottom of the story of this great, great deer. So, again, some sometimes the, the story is more after the deer is dead than it is before. And either way, if you're in the whitetail media and you're chasing these stories down, it's all fascinating to be part of. It's just a matter of exact, you know, how the details played out. But but it's a privilege to be around those great deer and, and, and the people who shot them, the antler collectors, and everybody else who's involved with them. I think we all have great, great respect for the animal. I think that's what unites everybody. Yeah, yeah. Now, wh- now. Why did Milo Hansen's neighbor contact you and not Milo? <laughs> well, Milo was, uh, I'll tell you how little in the, into the trophy whitetail scene Milo was. Uh, Jim Weeb happened to be a reader of North American Whitetail, and so he knew that was we were the kind of people that needed to know about this deer. So and I'm forever grateful that Jim picked up the phone and, and called our office. Of course, Milo himself, I don't think had really... I mean, he was a trophy hunter in a sense, like most guys are. If you live where there are some big deer, you know, I mean, you'd rather shoot a big one than a little one, right? I mean, I think that's, you know, there's more opportunity to to shoot a big one by happenstance, obviously, in western Saskatchewan than there is here here around Atlanta, for sure, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, in, in his case, he happened to be the guy that shot it, but he wasn't... It wasn't some hardcore quest for Milo or his buddies. They just knew of the deer. Uh, but they were not heavy duty on this, you know, big pursuit of it. Uh, they happened to kill him. And so Milo, you know, he, he literally left the deer hanging after he shot it. He left it hanging in his grain, grain bin or whatever, uh, with the door not even locked on his farm for a week before I ever even saw it. And I oh, thought wow. after he caped, they caped it out. I mean, he didn't even. It never registered with Milo that this was as historic, obviously, as it turned out to be. And uh, but but that's that's kind of I think that's cool, really. You know, yeah, it's today, uh, no hype, right? There wasn't the hype then that yeah. there is now. He probably had no idea yeah. that he would basically make a living off the deer. <laughs> well, as it turned out, you know, when I was at Milo's house, when I was hunting in Saskatchewan, after I went to Saskatchewan in 1993 to see this deer, I literally never set foot in the province of Saskatchewan again until a little over a year ago. So, and the reason was, I just, I, I didn't have any hunts up there. And I finally went back in 2019, shot a really nice deer, but also got to go by Milo's house for the first time since 1993. And it's kind of like a time capsule in a sense. I mean, he's got his, his, you know, he's got his deer mounted in a glass case and all that. And we did a big buck profile for the TV show, which was fun after all these years. And, and yet it's still the same house, same farm. Milo's just like all of us. He's just that many years older, but same guy. And, um, 
you know, in that sense, I mean, it's really, it's really neat. So, so few of these people have turned out to kind of change after they became famous, if you will. I mean, you, yeah. you wonder if he, you wonder if it's going to, if fame's going to get to their head or whatever. Uh, Milo's, you know, he's the same guy as he was before. Mike Beatty, same guy as ever. Sam Calora, all these guys that kill these mega giant deer virtually all of them that I know personally, they're just the same person they were back whenever that was, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm, re- I'm, I'm relieved by that because I think yeah. that speaks well, speaks well to their character. And I think it allows them to come across as the genuine people they are as ambassadors of what we do. What's your thought? And if you don't want to talk much about it, <laughs> that's fine. What's your thought on the Mitch Rompala buck since that's a Michigan thing and I live in Michigan? Um, <laughs> sometimes people in the know, I try to ask them that just to get their two cents. Yeah, to be honest with you, I never, you know, I don't dwell, I don't dwell on, you know, what is the reality of that deer because, you know, as with any deer, and this is true if it's a kid's first yearling doe or it's the biggest deer that ever walked. I mean, whoever shot it, it's their deer. It's their deer to decide what to do with. Now, if a person wants to take a deer, and I'm not just speaking about Mitch, I'm anybody that shoots a potential record class deer, <laughs> even, if, even if it's a 125-inch Pope and Young and you decide, well, I don't want to enter it, that is totally your business. I mean, it's your tag on the deer. It belongs to you. It doesn't belong to the state or province anymore. It belongs to you. Okay, so in, in that sense, I have no qualms with Mitch or anyone else saying, I'm not going to enter my deer. I'm not going to display it. I'm not going to do a story on it. I'm not going to do anything with it. If, if they wanted to, they <laughs> could cut the antlers up into coat buttons, and that's their business, <laughs> right? Now, now we would all, as as trophy whitetail fanatics, we would all hope naturally that the person would share the deer and let everyone celebrate in the deer. However, we have zero right to that. You know, that's just the way it is. Now, if you if you, if you want to celebrate a world record deer and be sure it gets celebrated, go kill it yourself and then do that. But that's a hard thing to do, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, I don't look at it like okay, it's you know, there's any fault to find with Mitch for what he did or didn't do with his deer, you know, now, because I've never had the deer, the antlers in my hands, I can make no definitive statement one way or another about whether or not I think that the antlers are real, whether they're altered, whether everything looks like it came from where he said it did. I mean, I have, I have nothing to go on. So I tend, I have tended to not dwell on that because I've, Again, because my general attitude toward what people can do with their deer or not do with it is, as a hunter myself, I wouldn't want somebody dictating to me that, oh, well, you owe it to the world to do this with your deer. No, I really don't. The world didn't pay for my tag. The world didn't pay for my time. And I did it, and it's my tag on the deer. Okay? So I I think that's true of every deer, including the Rompola buck. Sure. Now, do you think... Uh, let's face it, North American whitetail as a whole is partially responsible for the hype that surrounds whitetails today. Um, sure. Do you think the hype has been, you know, all the, you know, we, everyone has turned into a trophy hunter. Everyone, a lot of people are obsessed with antlers now. Do you think that's been a good thing? Well, I think it has in general. I wouldn't say it's universally good. Um, when you have, I mean, even when I was a kid, People and there weren't any trophy deer magazines 
we all still wanted to kill big bucks. I mean, my buddies and I in class, I mean, if you kill the nine pointer, you know, you're, you're bragging until your buddy brought in a 10 pointer. Okay. And then all of a sudden he had bragging rights. Okay. So I think people, there were always big buck contests back then. Hey, the local lions club would say, Hey, we're having a fundraiser. We're selling raffle tickets, you know, or whatever. And we're going to have a big buck contest and you win a free shoulder mount and a brand new Remington 700, 30 alt six if you bring in the biggest buck well it, it wasn't even specified what was going to be the biggest it's just like you know if you win the big buck contest you get these things and so there's always been some kind of a drive i think heck if you go back eighteen thousand years to the caves in france i mean they were painting pictures in those caves of really big animals they weren't painting pictures <laughs> of those they were they, they were painting pictures of big bucks and stags right i mean that's just yeah. it's, it's almost like it's almost human nature people yeah, yeah, it's like, hey, the big, the biggest is the best, right? And so it's not just an American materialism thing. I think it's just almost we're almost hardwired that way. And so I think NAW tapped into that more so than created it. Um, I'm not saying we didn't we didn't we didn't put fuel on the fire because yeah, you fanned the flame, you know, sure. Yeah, you know, common sense says we did. But I've always said, look, you'll go broke trying to create a market for something, but you can be successful trying to serve a market. But that market has to be at least a latent market already has to exist. Otherwise, you can't you can't last long enough to build it you know, out of thin air. It has to be the materials have to be there already. And I think that was clearly the case, not only with people becoming more interested in specialty magazines. It wasn't just general magazines anymore. If you look across all the, the print industry, I mean, you started getting more and more specialty, special interest publications. NAW is a good example of that. Bassmaster, a lot of things like that. Uh, Bowhunter even, you know, a, a yeah. lot of these magazines, I mean, even Peterson's Hunting versus Outdoor Life was a step toward a more specialized content. And so I think NAW just, you know, the whitetail business is big compared to any other part of the hunting industry. I mean, that's, you know, as goes the whitetail, as goes North American hunting, period. You put all the caribou, sheep, antelope guys, turkey guys, everything else put together, they don't equal the whitetail industry. And so the trophy whitetail industry was a natural kind of a refinement, if you will, of that general um interest and general popularity, if you will, and availability of the whitetail. I mean, that's what made the whitetail and still makes it so cool is that you don't have to save up 10 years to go to hunt central barren ground caribou to kill a big whitetail. I mean, you don't have, it's a different process. It's a, it's a, it's a home, it's a home front kind of an activity that's, that we're all part of all the time because we all live close to deer. And so, sure. so we don't all live close to the, the Hanson buck or anything or the hole in the horn buck, but we all live close to deer that we would like to shoot. And so mm-hmm. and we all feel like, Hey, if I work hard enough, if I save my time off at work, if I, if I get the right weather, if I shoot well, if I had the right deer, the right spot, the right tree, the right day, I've got a chance, you know? And so I think we tapped into that more so than created that interest and the whitetail Population, of course, was starting to boom about the time white NAW started. So that contributed as well. Had the whitetails herd been on the decline, had we been going into some EHD years or something like that, instead yeah. of every year being better, I think it would have been a harder 
rode a hoe, as they say. But but we again were blessed with the right idea at the right time. Sure. How do you think the uh, the whitetail market has changed, or whitetails in general? As you look over your career, what's some of the biggest changes you've seen? Well, clearly, land access has been such you know, in some ways, positive and a negative. Um, I know some of my friends in the industry, we lament the fact that if a kid, you know, is reading or watching TV or he, he sees, you know, Lee Lakowski shoot a big buck, so he wants to become a deer hunter. Well, he's, he, he's got, a, he's got a tougher path ahead of him in some ways to go do that or to get into the, to, to the, um, to the activity that he's interested in. And, and the reason is, I mean, you might still be able to grab a Zebco and go down to the local farm pond and catch a fish, <clears throat> but, but uh, you know, neighbor Joe might not let you come shoot a deer, you know, yeah. because... Uh, you there? Yeah, I'm here. Um, okay, you're bra- breaking so, up there for a minute. Okay. Uh, I'll start over again. You, you know, a kid might be able to find somebody to let him go catch a fish, but to, to let him go shoot a big buck or, or any deer sometimes now is harder because so much land is tied up in leases and it's been bought for recreational value and uh, or for recreational use. And you can understand the person that invests in this uh, wants, you know, to benefit from it. They don't want to just go buy a nice <laughs> farm and then turn it over to the locals. Um, yeah. At the same at the same time, that does tend to to tighten up the faucet, if you will, on recruitment. And I admit that that you know has has occurred. It's natural that it has. Uh, again, we live in a capitalist free market society, and value. Uh, you know, you're not selling the deer when you sell somebody when you when you uh, let somebody lease your land. You're not selling them the resource. You're selling them the access. And so. You know, it's totally legal and legit to do that. I, you know, I, I think that's really why we have the quality of hunting we have now is that we have so many more selective management oriented hunters. So it has greatly helped the resource. Uh, no question. I think the herd is much healthier overall than it was back when I started. However, access to that resource naturally has become more expensive and more exclusive. And that's why people that lament, well, we're, we're turned into Europe. You know, it's a, it's a feudalist type of a system now where only the elites get to hunt. Well, some of the people that are complaining about not having a place to hunt do not prioritize hunting. Uh, and some of the yeah. people who do have places to hunt do that. I mean, they work a second job. They cut out a pack of cigarettes a day. They did whatever it took to pay for that, that access because it matters to them. And some people, it doesn't matter that much, but they love to complain about it come deer season. And so sure. people, 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 they're into and what they prioritize. We know that. And so deer hunting is just another form of that, but it has tended to, to slow down or, or to diminish the recruitment, if you will. And I, I think society in general has done that anyway, because of where people live and how, how the land is chopped up anymore, but um, you know it's just one of the it's just one of the things that we fight. Uh, but the resource itself, I think, is healthier, frankly, than it's certainly than it was when I started, and I believe it's as healthy as it's ever been. Uh, how do you think COVID has affected all this? Now, as a guy who works full time in the industry, COVID has actually given hunting in general a shot in the arm. 
Uh, do you see that as a positive thing from a hunting standpoint? Well, as a guy who has not only had COVID, but I'm about to do my fifth convalescent plasma donation <laughs> for other people that have COVID and that have it much worse than I did. I, and I think we've all been affected by it in some way, whether we've lost, had it ourselves, lost family, friends, yeah. uh, seen the impact, obviously, in our local communities as well as the nation and the world as a whole. That said, because so many people are now working remotely or unfortunately have lost their jobs or been furloughed, so many more people this year, and I say this year meaning 2020 hunting season, so many more people were in the field. And not just hunters. I mean, it was bird watchers. It was people walking their dogs. They they, they wanted to get out and do things, and they, so they went particularly to public land. And, and, and there was a lot of people out there that has an effect on the hunting for sure. I know talking to Tony Peterson, who, who's one of the guys on our project public team that goes out every year now and uh, hunts strictly on public land and tries to, to show the quality of the hunting out there, uh, and the opportunities he, he told me, he said, boy, he said there was a lot more people in the field in 2020. And, uh, he said, I do attribute it to COVID because, I mean, what else would have changed, really? Not, it isn't that everybody suddenly decided, hey, I want to go hunt public land. But in some cases, particularly if you're short on money and you're long on time, you're going to go to the accessible places and spend more time there. And that turned out to be a lot of our public hunting lands. And so I do think participation went up. I certainly think that when we saw the supply, pro- supply chain problems we did with the meat industry, uh, on commercial meats that a lot of people this past fall probably said, hey, I'm whacking that first doe that comes by in bow season because we want meat in the freezer. And a lot of people now are starting to see that venison is a great thing and is very healthy. <clears throat> and again, the local war movement, there's a lot of things that coincide with that. But COVID really brought to bear a lot of the problems of depending on other people for your food supply. And, you know, it in that sense, I think that's a good thing because it did show people that, hey, venison is a positive, and deer aren't just vermin. They are a part of nature and, and a resource to be tapped into and utilized and appreciated. What do you think the future holds for for deer hunting? I mean, do you think uh, we have more diseases sometimes, or we hear more about them, obviously, uh, EHD and CWD, but where do you think, do you see the whitetail industry in the future? Well, there's no question it is a mature marketplace, if you will. If you just look at it from the industry side looking out to the public, you say, well, we have an extremely, you know, in some ways perhaps over. You're breaking up again. I don't know if you moved. Uh, I I moved about six inches, but I'll move back. Yeah, what, what what's happened is that back back when I was a kid, I mean, you had two or three gun companies everybody knew. You had two or three bow companies, and those were all recurves, of course. And you didn't have any, you didn't have any trail cameras. You didn't have a lot of these things. And so now we have so many tools, and so many brands, and so many uh, facets of our industry serving the deer market. That in that sense, I don't see a lot of room for tremendous innovation that this, that's, you know, earth shattering uh, in the next generation, if you will. I, there's always somebody going to fool you. There's always going to be an ozonics come along. There's always going to be a thermocell. There's always going to be something that you say, Hey, this is a you know better mousetrap. 
Um, yeah. And then in that sense that, you know, hunters will benefit from it and it will become a popular, almost a, a category, you know, changing type of, of, of product or trend. From the industry perspective, I see that it's getting harder and harder because we're just having to slice the whole thing thinner and thinner, right? Yeah. Um, so, so in that sense, I don't see great, great change coming about in the fundamental aspects of how we hunt or what we hunt with. Um, I do see that, you know, at some point, politically or otherwise, uh, in terms of, of access and things of that nature, uh, you know, it's, it just gets harder and harder for the hunter to, to feel like he's welcome. Uh, and, and in many cases, she as well, because we're seeing huge growth in the female side of hunting, as you know. Uh, that does give me a lot of hope, actually, because that has tended to soften the image, if you will, of hunting as just being this macho, bloodthirsty, redneck sport. Yeah. Number one, number one, it's really not a sport. And number two, it's certainly not macho, redneck, you know, hillbilly kind of a thing. It can be. Some people it still is, but there's a whole lot of articulate, educated, enlightened people that love to hunt and manage deer. And as long as we can continue to have them be the face of hunting, as well as the females, the kids, and everything else, but as long as we can continue to put, put our best foot forward, I think we have a chance to be accepted and for the future to be as good as the past has been. If we can't do that, then naturally um, we could get overwhelmed by other forces in society, not to mention problems, diseases, or whatever with the herd. But I do think that the whitetail has been incredibly resilient. Um, you know, if you look at it, I mean, the old saying that, you know, if, if the bomb gets dropped, the only thing will be left will be cockroaches and coyotes. Well, I've because they just have figured out how to survive despite all these problems and challenges and different climates, different habitats, different times. Whitetail is still the whitetail. So in that sense, it'll be the last thing to go will be deer hunting. And if it goes, then then I think the world's in a pretty pretty bad place, and it's a pretty sad place. Sure, I would I would agree. They they have a tendency to live everywhere. That's for sure. <coughs> now, um, recruitment is obviously something we all talk about now. Um, have you seen that as a bright spot in the last few years? Do you feel like uh, there's a mindset change that more people are trying to recruit the next generation? Well, I do think that we see that, Tracy. One of the reasons being that um, the unfortunate side of the shift of hunters being older and older. Man, you know, you're, you're starting to break white, up quite a bit. Peter of North, North American Whitetail, on average, is probably a 50-year-old guy. I mean, that's your yeah. average reader. Okay, so he shot a lot of deer now. Um, he still loves to hunt, but he's also got kids and even now grandkids that he wants to pass this along to this lifestyle, this, this family oriented activity. And I think in that sense, a lot of our hunters are becoming better mentors and recruiters. Now we all grew up, almost all of us anyway, grew up, you know, that, that are hunters of my age. I'm just about 65. Well, most of us grew up in rural settings. We had a male mentor, generally a family member. That's how we got into hunting. So while that may have broadened out some now, um, nonetheless, that is still the, the, the logical place for most hunters to get their start. So if grandpa is an enlightened hunter, a landowner, a deer manager, an experienced avid hunter, then 
you know, it makes sense that if he wants to be a good mentor, that he has the facilities and the tools and the background to do it. Um, we hope that that continues to be the case and becomes an even stronger thing. And, and I'd like to think that as the world has kind of started to look, you know, inward a little bit at what really matters, not so much the materialism of, of the world that we've grown up in, but you know, COVID and things like that really bring it home that, hey, you know, your family matters, um, you know, being surrounded by the people you love and doing things you want to do as a, as a family, that's, you know, nothing better than deer hunting for that. It's a year-round activity, even though season's not year-round. The whole activity and lifestyle of whitetail hunting and management is absolutely year-round. Shed hunting, you know, sign reading, running cameras, bow hunting, gun hunting, deer drives, all these things, deer camp itself. I mean, deer camp is no longer just a place. It's now a mentality. It's a mindset. Yeah. And so we can, we can still have that even if nobody goes to the tar paper shack back in the woods anymore come November, you can still have a deer camp mentality. And I think a lot of people are developing that and nurturing that within their own circles. And, and so in that sense, I think, you know, the future could be bright if people really take that seriously and, and have effective way to reach out to the new hunter. Now, in closing, as you look back over your career, uh, have more monster bucks been killed as a fluke, just some guy happens to be in the right place at the right time, versus guys who are true, you know, whitetail killers, deer managers, trail cameras, all those things. Obviously, more now than ever, <coughs> trail cameras play a role. But as you look back, is it more just luck? You know, I think to say that a hot Break, breaking up again. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm breaking up on both ends a little bit here. Let me see if it, let me see if we can get through this. Um, if you have, you know, kind of a kind of a breaking point in the in the modern history of white hills, let's just say where you went from being happenstance, lucky kills, just random sort of success to strategic planned success on mature bucks it did tend to coincide with the development and advent of the trail camera. I don't mm-hmm. think it's I don't think it's a hundred percent doesn't, it's not in lockstep with it, but really about the early 1990s um, when nobody was had a trail camera. I mean, a few people were using trail timers, but there, there was a lot of voodoo involved in that, you know, in terms of <laughs> what you were hunting and, and very few people were shed hunting. I mean, and not too many people even had food plots then. So it was really kind of a different world, you know, even even 30 years ago. But in the 90s, we started to see guys get more serious. Now, how much we contributed to this by educating them or, or any other magazine or, or videos or anything, uh, I, I do not know. I mean, it's hard to say. It's going to be a case-by-case deal. But, but I will say that people started to connect the dots and say, look, this, this deer is here. Um, I've seen him. I know he's here. I've got his sheds. Uh, may not, that may be all I know about him, but I'm trying to kill him. And once you got to the point where people became selective like that, and particularly with the Midwest coming online like it did, uh, some of the places, the UP, South Texas, uh, Alabama, you know, even, even maybe Maine or somewhere like that, Virginia, they were, 
there were always a lot of deer hunters. Um, you know, again, not all of the trophy hunters, but there were a lot of people that hunted deer and that were successful. But as the big deer in the Midwest started to come online, people started to know they were there. They started to document them with sheds and trail cameras. And at that point, the archery equipment started to get to be so much better. The rangefinder came along in the 90s. There were so many things, mechanical broadheads, uh, so many quantum leaps, never mind crossbows and such, and, and range-finding scopes, but just vertical archery itself became a tool that was viable to kill big deer on purpose. And particularly yeah. in states where you, where you could bait and run cameras and use high, what I'm going to call high-tech archery equipment, which is today's 300-foot-per-second vertical bows, and, and range-finders that were precise. You put all those things together with baiting, and it is really no wonder that good land has continued to produce big deer year after year after year for some of the same people. Now, a lot of these big deer are not killed by baiting, and baiting is not universally legal, as you well know. But yeah. many of the state, many of the states where the big deer come from, I mean, baiting is is part of the regimen. Uh, whether it's Ohio, Kansas, Texas, I mean, the Oklahoma, the, these are all bait states. Kentucky. Um, now here in Georgia even. So, you know, you're starting to see more predictable success and you're starting to see people that go out there every day with a reason to be hunting a certain deer in a certain spot at a certain time. And they have really good equipment and they know how to use it. And that is so much of a quantum leap from where we were when I was a kid that it's almost like talking about two different species. Sure. So what does the future hold for you, sir? I mean, are uh, you hoping to still get after it? Do you still love whitetails <laughs> like you always have? Or are you going to, you know, kind of ride off into the sunset? Well, I don't know any any real whitetail hunter that ever really just said, oh, I've, I've had enough fun. I think I'm going to quit. Uh, <laughs> you know, maybe somebody <laughs> does. But it's generally going to be health or other situations that force you out of the field. And, uh, yeah. and I had, I had, I had trouble getting out there in 2020 myself just because my wife was having some health issues, but you know, you have to take care of your main business first. And then, you know, I've, I've been on a lot of great deer hunts. If I never went on another one, uh, I would be, I would have been incredibly blessed. I've hunted, hunted them in five countries. I've shot them in, I don't know. I think I've hunted 40 something States and provinces. I've, I've shot <laughs> I'm virtually from coast to coast. I've shot big ones. I've shot little ones. I've been with great people to hunt with, whether we killed them or not. And, you know, we just had a, we just had a lot of fun. That doesn't go away. The memories of that don't go away. And so my, my goal, of course, is to continue to keep hunting. Uh, whether I'll keep doing television, you know, hunts or not, I, I haven't decided yet. I, you know, every, every day is a new day, but, but, I do want to continue to share the experience and the lifestyle and the passion we all have for it. It's just a matter of how frequently I do that. And uh, I'm, I'm blessed now to be retired where I don't have to do anything I don't want to do. So uh, I, look for, I look forward to it because the, the cup is still at least half full. And, you know, and my interest is as strong as it ever was. It's just that, um, you know, I, I'm mature enough now, I think, to realize that uh, there'll be an end to it at some point for all of us. I don't care who it is. Uh, any, every deer hunter goes on his last hunt eventually. Right. So, yeah. so for all, for all of us, I think we have to just take every day, really every, every second we're out there, just appreciate it and feel blessed that we've had that opportunity. 
and it's really not about what you shoot. It's, it's about the, the big picture of the experience. You know, it sounds cliche to say that, but the older I get, the more I realize it's true. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you taking some time away uh, shortly after your retirement to talk with me, and I wish you uh, the best as you move forward. I appreciate that, Tracy, and I would say to all of your listeners out there that uh, hopefully you've, you've all come through 2020 in decent shape. 2021 lies ahead, and we all feel like and, and, and trust it's going to be a better year, and I hope everybody gets the buck of their dreams this fall. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Man, it was great having Gordon on the show today. He is an awesome guy, a humble guy, and has an endless supply of whitetail knowledge. Uh, so I'm sure everyone enjoyed that show today. To find out more about me, visit my website, tracybreen.com. That's T-R-A-C-Y-B-R-E-E-N.com. Uh, use that website to book speaking engagements at Wild Game Dinners. Uh, if you want to help out the show, the greatest thing you can do is just go give us a positive review on Google Play or iTunes. Until next week, have a great day and God bless.